Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all, technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. All right. Charles Eisenstein here with Rupert Sheldrake, um, a man who, for many of you, probably needs no introduction, but I'll do a little bit anyway. Um, I met Rupert at uh, a TEDx event that eventually became infamous because his talk, along with Graham Hancock's, was then uh, banned by the TED authorities. Uh, and that's a whole other story that we might get into. But I was just really, um, I really enjoyed, you know, we, we had some conversations and I uh, hope I don't embarrass you, Rupert, but I was just really impressed by your um, lucidity and also, um, in general, your um, courtesy and poise when faced with uh, the sometimes pretty vitriolic attacks that that you face in your work, because because Rupert is really a pioneer. Um, a lot of ideas that, at least in our community, seem rather, um, we almost take them for granted. Things like morphic resonance, morphog um, morphogenic fields. Um, when, when Rupert Sheldrake began talking about those several decades ago, that was an almost unthinkable heresy coming from the context that, that I don't know whether to say he or you, um, but I, I think that one reason why you're public enemy number one for the most rabid defenders of scientific orthodoxy mm. is because you come from that world. Mm. Now, you can't just like write them off as some new age crackpot because you have a PhD from Cambridge, you know, mm. you like have publications in biology, you know, so that especially rankles when one of your own turns coat. Mm. Um, anyway, so, um, yeah, I'm just really, really happy to, to be here speaking with you. And so I'll tell a little story to, to, do, do, you, yeah, want, do you want to add yeah. anything to my, uh, no, that's fine, Charles. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, so, okay. So in your talk at, so I'd read your book, uh, in the U S it's called science set free, but I really liked the science delusion better. The it's British the, title. The British title. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so before your talk, in fact, I kind of got you into trouble because I'm like, Oh, I really hope you talk about the, uh, um, the, the, in part of your book, you talk about how the, the constants of physics mm. may not actually be constant, mm. uh, but there's no room in, in any of the theories for the constants not being constant. So for example, the um, universal gravitational constant, the speed of light, I said, mm. boy, I'd really, that was really amazing. I, you know, I'd love for you to talk about that. Mm. So you did. And then a controversy erupted on some of the skeptic websites, mm. so-called skeptics. And I, I read, you know, I, I read some of the back and forth. Uh, and one of the um, critics cited a physicist who wrote a scathing rebuttal of your point. And he's, you know, a highly credentialed physicist. And I read the article and he said, you know, this is just wrong. The speed of light is not at all controversial. And here's a chart to prove it. And the chart, you know, I, I just glanced at it. I didn't study it carefully. I glanced at it and there was the data series converging on the present data, you mm. know, and I'm like, ah, I guess Rupert got this one wrong. Mm. But then, but I just said, well, let's just see what, what Rupert Sheldrake has to say about it. And then I, I looked at your rebuttal of the rebuttal mm. and I realized, oh, this chart actually reinforces your point mm. because it leaves out the years in question. 
uh, in which the speed of light like shifted to some other value. But dropped by about 20 kilometers per second. Right, yes. which is highly significant. Yes. I mean, 20 kilometers a second, given the accuracy of the measurements, that's yes. huge. Yes. Right. And they left that part out. Yes. So, but, but even I, who I'm very sympathetic to your views, I was kind of taken in by physicist chart, mm. you know, it, something that obvious must not have been overlooked. Mm. Um, and I guess that kind of speaks to the power of the orthodoxy. Yes, the power of authority. And the power of authority. Mm. <sighs> There's one other thing I was going to th say about that. Um, but I can't remember what it is. Well, I think that that's, a, 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 you know, that is a very important point, this power of authority. What's happening at the moment, what's happening, it's extraordinarily interesting what's happening at the moment in science, is an extraordinary collapse of confidence in authority, mm -hmm. in the heart of science. And um, this is not, it hasn't reached the general public. This is something discussed almost weekly in the pages of Nature and the top scientific journals, but it's like right. an internal discussion, as it were, on the high table of science. The crisis of reproducibility, yes, for example. Yes, the replicability yeah. crisis. Mm -hmm. Because you see, the, the, um, this enormous variation in the speed of light, a drop in 20 kilometers per second all around the world for between 1928 and 1945, where they were all getting lower values and they were all getting with tiny error bars. You know, the, right. this was supposed to be highly accurate. I mean, plus or minus 0.1 of a kilometer per second or something. So when it goes up by 20 kilometers per second, it's way beyond the supposed error. So the point I was making in my TED talk is basically, you know, what's going on? I mean, if the speed of light can change, it changes our views of nature. And if the speed of light really is constant, how come that scientists all around the world were getting false values for such a long time and all agreeing with each other? Uh, which shows that, uh, which could show that scientists simply adjust their data to fit what they expect to find, which is a terrible blow to the idea of it being completely objective. Now this replicability crisis which started two or three years ago in, with biomedical research mm -hmm. where I don't know if you've discussed it on your podcast before but... Uh, no, I wrote a little article about it though. Oh, yeah. Well briefly, I mean just to summarize it for those who haven't been following this, the um, some drug companies um, found that they weren't getting anywhere in their research. Um, they were spending billions of dollars and not, it's all obeying the law of diminishing returns, sort of regular right. drug research. And they looked at the 50 key papers in the field on which their research was based, the top papers in top journals, and they commissioned an ind independent replication. Turned out 45 out of 50 could not be replicated. Another drug company couldn't believe this, so they commissioned another study with very similar results. And this has triggered off what's now called the replicability crisis, because now people have started looking in other branches of science, the most recent was psychology. Mm -hmm. It turns out about 60% of papers in top psychology journals cannot be replicated. In social psychology, it's about 65%. This is now spreading to other sciences, including chemistry. Um, uh, so. What's happening is that the so-called objectivity of science is becoming unraveled. There was a cartoon in Nature a few weeks ago. Um, on the, I don't know if you saw that, the, the Temple of Science cartoon. No, I haven't. No. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you a copy and, and you know, you might... Yeah, we can put it on the website. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, it shows the Temple of Science with across the top of the Temple of Science, robust science, the temple simply crumbling. And, we, and to have this on, on the lead page in Nature is rather extraordinary. Um, and the reason it's crumbling is that the uh, standard view in science is that science is true and objective and is superior to all other forms of human endeavor because its objectivity is guaranteed by replicability and robust peer review. Right. Well, now it turns out that a great deal of science is not replicable, even in top journals, and it turns out something I've known for a long time, but and most practicing scientists have known, is that, in fact, very few people ever bother to replicate anything because uh, you can't get replications published in journals most of the time. If you yeah, just replicate a study, they say, oh, we only publish original research. So in practice, hardly any replication is ever done. 
And therefore, we don't know how replicable a lot of science is, and it turns out now people are actually checking it out that rather little is. Um, and that's because, the main reason for that is because scientists only publish a small fraction of their data. Five or ten percent of their findings are published in journals. The rest remains in file drawers. Um, so, you know, I, again, I've known this since I was a graduate student. When we saw papers in the biochemical journal, uh, and it said representative results are shown in figure one, and it was obvious that these weren't representative, they were the best results. And, right. you know, there were lots of other data that were messy, inconclusive, well, maybe that was dirty test tubes, the experiment didn't work, etc. People are producing highly selective papers based on what they think is the best data, in other words, data that agrees with their hypothesis. Right, or, or data that will uh, be acceptable within their community, their... Well, exactly. Right. I mean, and like when people were measuring the speed of light um, in the 1930s, for example, there was an accepted value by then. You know, the, the other lamps right. had got this much lower value than the previous value, and they said, oh, well, the previous one must have been an error, we've got better equipment now. They must have just selected the measurements that agreed with what they thought they ought to be getting. I mean, there's a famous case of Millikan, the great American Nobel-winning physicist, um, who worked out the charge on the electron. Mm -hmm. And he had a dispute with one of his critics who said, you know, it wasn't what he said it was. And, and Millikan won the dispute and everyone said, you know, these other people are useless, Millikan's the great guy, etc. Someone looked through his, a historian of science looked through his laboratory notebooks uh, where he's actually recording the measurements of the charge on dro oil droplets, which is how he measured the charge on the electron. And there's notes against the measurement saying, must be something wrong with this one, discard. And then another one says, a butte, publish this. Um, so um, it's obvious that yeah. when you look behind the scenes, that scientists are human like everybody else. Yeah. But there's been this facade of objectivity, which is in fact very misleading, both to scientists and to other people. So, so there's two, there's, um, when I think about the doctrine of objectivity in science, I, I see that there's kind of two levels to it. Um, right now, the whole controversy in the scientific establishment is basically, it's not questioning the fundamental possibility of objectivity. It's basically saying, and this is good, I mean, this is, this is a salutary uh, movement, Oh, it's very saying, good, yes. They're saying, you know, we haven't been doing a very good job of it. Yes. We've been letting our biases get in the way, our sloppiness, our laziness, yes. um, our institutional uh, incentives and so on. Um, and we've got to do it better. We've got to have more replicability. Uh, but they're not questioning one of the key metaphysical assumptions of science, which is that there is an objective reality out there. Yes, separate from our stories, our beliefs, our systems of meaning, mm -hmm. um, separate from our choices about what to measure, what not to measure, separate from our ideologies. But it's out there, separate from us, and science is a process of getting closer and closer to objective fact, so that someday theory and fact will be uh, coextensive. Yes. And that is... I question that assumption as well. I wonder what you think about that. Yes, well, you're right. I mean, so far the debate is is a welcome humility, which I've never seen in the whole of my scientific career. I've never seen mm. this level of humility and public mm. discussion within the science of, you know, things have been going badly wrong. The peer review system's also under attack because, yeah. you know, a whole series of fake papers were generated recently in an experiment to see how reliable it was, and more than 50% were accepted by peer-reviewed journals. Although were, some people are, are, I mean, most of those acceptances were from kind of pseudo-journals, you know, that, that you know, are, you have to pay to get in. and right. Well, that's right, but you have to pay to get in regular ones that's too. True. Very, uh, no, right. You know, if you want them to be in public access online. That, so, yeah. uh, again, that's saying, well, there's the real journals that are right. the really true ones, and the ones that do this are the pseudo-journals. Right. So, again, it's the attempt to preserve the idea that the core of science is absolutely okay. Yes. Um, that, um, that, but these are just sort of rogue journals, or these are just flaws in the procedure. So, um, I, I, so it raises much the same point as you were raising about replicability. Um, 
Yes, well, you see, the assumption is that there's an objective world out there that we simply measure, and that if you do it right, and if enough people do it right, you'll arrive at the truth. Well, that's questionable in several ways. Well, first of all, I am a realist in the sense I think there is a world out there that has a constancy of habits. I think nature's run by habits, and I don't think it's just distorted by our own perceptions. You know, I think the universe was getting on just fine until humans came along, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't personally think stars and galaxies only started having the properties we observe when 20th century physicists started observing them. Um, so I, 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 you know, and I think plants and animals were around long before humans and were doing more or less what we see them doing now. Um, but I think there are cases where uh, the experimental method um, and the experiment's expectations can have an effect on what we observe. Um, in the realm of parapsychology, um, there have been a lot of experiments on psychokinesis, mind over matter effects, yeah. on quantum processes, on random quantum right. processes. And quite a lot of these experiments show seemingly significant effects of, on quantum random, uh, random quantum processes of experiments, intentions or thoughts. Well, then that raises the question, now what do we make of, say, the Higgs boson? Here you have 50,000 PhD physicists, all who want to find the Higgs boson because it confirms the standard model of physics which the whole of established physics is based on at the moment. They all want to find it. They've spent 10 billion euros on building the Large Hadron Collider um, with public money. Um, um, They're going to look very foolish if they can't find it. they're not going to be able to get another 10 billion to build an even bigger hadron collider for the next particle they want to find. Uh, they've got to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you create a situation of extreme quantum instability. You've got cloud chambers, incredibly sensitive apparatus, measuring right. tiny quantum fluctuations, etc. And here they are, 50,000 physicists, all wanting this to work in, for all sorts of reasons. Here's a highly indeterminate quantum system. And then they get the result they want after right. quite a lot of false starts and tries. Right. And so, again, there's two levels here, because really what they get is a uh, you know, trail through a cloud chamber somewhere. Yes. You know, they get like, a, a, like some path, and then they, ah, there it is, that's the Higgs boson, because yes. it fits into some set of equations. Which interpret that, the pattern they that see. That interpret the pattern. And there might be, if you were operating from within a different theory, you might be able to interpret that that path in some other way quite so that's that's one level is to to question you know is um you know so you wouldn't question the kind of uh in um observer independence of that particular path but you question the interpretation that's but right the, you're taking it a step deeper to say yes. perhaps that incredible um incredibly strong psychic field yes that that is created by the expectations and hopes and and um, uh, projection of meaning of this huge community is even generating that experimental yes. result. And and this is a blurry boundary because what if there were other uh, trails in the cloud chamber that were simply discarded as as you know contamination you know, some kind of error. Yes. And here's the one that is significant because this is the one that could possibly fit our yes. predictions. And and this, like, I, I think that, that it's problematic to to imagine that that there's some foolproof way to, to make that distinction. Yes, know? I think it's very problematic, yeah. yes. Um, and, you know, the what, what, how we interpret science and what actually happens depends on the people doing it and the the degree to which you see there's a tremendous culture of denial within the official world of science about psychic phenomena yeah um like psychokinesis and telepathy and so on partly because if psychic phenomena exist and if experimenters intentions affect the system they're investigating then one of these standard assumptions about science being about what's really out there um is definitely thrown into question. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, in the real world, of course, we know that people's expectations affect what happens. In, in medicine, it's called the placebo effect. If doctors think a new wonder drug's a new wonder drug um, and that a patient's being given it, they expect them to get better and the patients expect to get better and they do in, in many cases. Um, that's why you do double-blind placebo-controlled trials because the expectations of the doctors and the patients actually affect what's happening. And that's why blind methodology is used in psychology and especially in parapsychology experiments. Mm -hmm. I did a survey which I discuss in my book Science Set Free um, of the top journals in physics, chemistry and biology to see how many of them use blind experiments. And virtually none do in physics or chemistry. In biology it's about 0.4%. Mm -hmm. um, and when we interviewed professors of physics, chemistry and biology to say, do you teach or use blind methods in your laboratory? Quite a lot didn't know what blind methods were. And uh, the ones that did said, well, we don't need them in chemistry, for example, um, because nature itself is blind. Uh, you only need right. them when you're dealing with human subjects. So right. the which, idea, is, which may be true, but boy, that's a big assumption. It's a big assumption. Yeah. So I proposed an experiment that I published in the Skeptical Inquirer, rather hoping that skeptics would be interested in the objectivity of science, which they claim they are. Mm -hmm. um, a very simple experiment, a, a standard lab class. I used to run lab classes, help in lab classes at Cambridge and at Harvard. So, you know, familiar with undergraduate lab classes. Uh, you do standard experiments and surprisingly, even in standard well-tried experiments, quite a lot of people get the wrong answer. So you just say, oh, you must have had dirty test tubes, it must have been you know, a mistake or something. Students, The students who do well in science are the ones who get the right answer through many years of science education. Right. Um, so um, normally these are done under open conditions. You're comparing, say, an inhibited enzyme with a control regular enzyme. And they're so you know they're given a flask inhibited enzyme control and told to measure the activity and most of them but not all find the inhibited enzyme doesn't work as well as the control is what they're meant to find. Yes. My proposed experiment is that half the class does it in the regular way and the other half has them labelled A and B and do them blind without knowing which is the inhibited one and the control. Then you simply do an analysis at the end of the experiment to see if there's any difference in the results between blind and open conditions. Um, and I haven't been able to persuade anybody to do that experiment. It's very elegant. It's very simple. Yep. It would cost nothing. You just change the labels. They do, everyone does the same experiment. I finally found a physicist who was interested, who taught physics at one of our top schools in Britain, Westminster um, School. Um, and he said, OK, well, I'll do this with the students. This is 18-year-old students. Um, and then he emailed me a week later and said, I, I, I've had a problem, the head of science you know, would like to meet you first. He doesn't, well, doesn't want me to do this until he's had a chance to meet you with the science department. So I went for a meeting and there were all the science department at the School of Teachers and the head of science who was a chemist. And um, I explained it to him and I said, um, and this would find out whether people's expectations affect what result they get and be very relevant to the question of scientific objectivity. Mm -hmm. He said, of course their expectations affect the result they get. They're being trained to be scientists and they have to know what to expect. And I said, uh-huh. And, um, and he, said, he said, your experiment will probably work. He said, and if it does, it'll open a can of worms. And he said, and I don't want it opened in my school. Wow. You know, I wonder if you could reframe that, though, as, as if you don't want to... Uh present something so so fundamentally challenging to existing paradigms you could just say you could say that the reason that we're doing this is to help train students in scientific integrity uh, and and learn the value of not fudging your data and and you know being honest about your results you know, yes. and see and this will test whether students are somehow you know rounding off their decimals in, in the yes. appropriate direction, you know, it's... It, yes, well, I think yeah. now, you see, in the light of the replicability crisis, which has only been in the last two years, and with now the mainstream of science discussing how we can get our act together, how we can do things better, 
I think the time for that would be very ripe because there's now a general, yeah. a growing realization that most scientific experiments are not done blind. In my survey, 85% of parapsychology was done blind, 25% of regular psychology, about 25% of medicine. And as I say, in biology, it goes down to about 0.4%, physics and chemistry almost zero. It's kind of ironic because parapsychology is criticized often as unscientific and sloppy and stuff, but it's actually adhering to a higher standard of rigor than conventional psychology. Well, that's because it's had a whole band of skeptics attacking parapsychology for, for decades now, saying, oh, the reason you get positive results is you're not publishing all your negative data. It's the file draw problem. Yeah. So parapsychologists say, OK, here's all the data. We'll publish. It's very... So all my own experiments in psychic research and parapsychology, I publish all the data because this is a standard criticism. And so we're so used to that, those of us who work in this field, that people who got their act together a long time ago. It turns out that all these criticisms... Um, apply with enormous force to so-called hard science. And yeah. People who live in glasshouses are being throwing stones at parapsychology for a long time. Mm -hmm. and the result is that the parapsychology is running a far tighter ship than any other branch of science because they've been subject to the, all this kind of sceptical scrutiny which the other branches of science have managed to escape by saying, oh, we're objective. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really interested in... You know, you, you, before you mentioned that you are a realist, uh, and essentially you're saying that you don't think that the entire universe is a production of the human mind, but I don't think that it's necessarily an either-or thing. Um, no, it's an interaction. Yeah, and the question then is, what exactly is the nature of that interaction? And, you know, the, this both... Um, the standard view hmm. um, that that aside from the measurable force that an observer exerts, the observer has no effect on what's true, and the idealist view, both of these, you know, the, the idealist view that says that it's all mind, it's hmm. all the human mind, actually, hmm. both of these share something in common, which is anthropocentrism, the former that human beings are the only intelligent conscious agents in the universe and the latter also that human beings are the only intelligent conscious agents in the universe mm. but when i when i look into um other ways of knowing other you know epistemological approaches to reality mm. um other um you know indigenous worldviews and things like that you would there's a, a kind of a third path that uh, grants agency and intelligence consciousness to other than human beings mm. um, and then frames so so they might say yes the universe is the generation of a story it's mm. created by a story but the story is not human in origin it's not that we create the story mm. uh, the story might exist prior to humanity and be uh, channeled or broadcast through human beings, uh, taking on some of the characteristics of the, of the human being who's conceiving, telling the story, enacting the story. Yes. But they exist in some world of ideal forms, or they exist prior and beyond humanity. So then <clears throat> you can have, then things get complicated. You know, because we're telling stories, but we are the tellers and not the originators of the stories. Hmm. So I, I, it's even hard for my mind to grapple with this, but um, it has some that that and I'm not sure how clearly I'm articulating it, um, but but some of that actually resonates with the original uh, or the pure the there's like. You know, in every institution and in every ideology, there's like a, at least a small gem, uh, a sacred core. Mm. And for me, the scientific method has that as well. It's really fundamentally motivated by humility. It says, we don't know, so we will ask. Mm. We will ask the universe. And I see that, like that if there's anything of science that I would like to preserve 
and uphold and celebrate. It's that. It's that core of humility that um, is shared with indigenous worldviews. What do you have to say? Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, again, that's an idealization of science that we will ask. I saw yesterday a quote from Sean B. Carroll, who's a developmental biologist and also um, a member of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, you know, mm. the skeptic organization, um, who was asked to contribute an article to a book on parapsychology. They said they, the editors invited him to read the evidence and then comment on it. And he replied, which they quote, there's no need for me to read the evidence. These phenomena are so contrary to the known laws of physics, it's impossible that any of this evidence can be correct. So I'm not right. going to read it. Well, no, that's not humility. That's right. a kind of dogmatic certainty, which I'm afraid is, is one of the great infections of science today. And as the whole point of my book, Science Set Free, is that science has got stuck in this kind of materialistic dogmatism. So I agree with you. Again, it's the point you made earlier. There's a difference between... The, the sort of what actually happens, the practice, and this core belief that the real thing is okay, it's fine. So now I agree with you about asking in science, but I'm just saying the practice of science is very often not that. Right. But I think that the point you make about shamanic cultures is also a point that we could equally make about Western culture. In the philosophy of Plato, which has had a huge influence on science, mm -hmm. particularly from the founding of the science in the 17th century of modern science, was very platonic. Um, the Plato's philosophy was that there's a world of forms and ideas beyond this world in which, of which this world's a kind of reflection. So a, an oak tree is a reflection of an archetypal form of an oak tree which exists beyond time and space that's reflected imperfectly in every actual right. oak tree. And when we know an oak tree, it's because our mind participates in this eternal mind um, which has these forms within it. We can recognize the oak tree. We're participating yes. in an objective form which exists beyond the human realm. Now, in Christian theology in the in early Middle Ages, it was thought that this Platonic realm was part of the Logos, the mind of God, part of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is the Logos. And so the Platonic world was incorporated into Christian theology, and what we knew was our participation in the mind of God. So human knowledge was sustained by God's knowledge. And when you get the formation of idealism in, in, more, in a more recent sort of Enlightenment context by Berkeley, or Berkeley as we call him in England, Bishop yeah. Berkeley, um, in in the um, 18th century, um, he said the whole world is in the mind of God and is sustained by the mind of God. Everything we know is in our minds, but it's not just human minds. And the right. reason there's a constancy to the world is that it's sustained by God's mind. Now, you see, very much the same was what Newton and Descartes and Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler, the founders of modern science, thought very much the same. They thought the mathematical laws of nature which they were trying to discover as part of this new science, uh, were actual laws. They were actually really out there beyond space and time, and they were part of the mind of a mathematical god. And I think what most scientists today still believe, although without being aware that this is a philosophy or being aware of its history, is that they're discovering the laws of nature and when string theory people come up with these theories about there being 10 to the 500 universes according to these laws and then they say we live in a multiverse because there's all these solutions to the equations they're basically saying the maths is more real than the world we live in and it's completely objective somehow beyond human minds human mm -hmm. minds participate in it this is a very platonic theory and it coexists with a kind of modernist culture of relativism and subjectivism um, and so we've got a kind of emulsion in the modern world and particularly within science of a kind of modernist sense or postmodernist sense that we've moved beyond all these certainties into a much more culturally relativistic human mind centered uh, make up reality as you go along or reflects your prejudices or points right. of view or stories um, and uh, many of the defenders of scientific orthodoxy are without knowing it platonists Mm -hmm. who believes that these laws are really out there and it's all an objective reality. Right. Right. And and kind of what I was getting at is that even like the um, postmodern reaction 
to that view mm. is still anthropocentric. Oh yes, right. Because it's extremely anthropocentric. Postmodernism is extremely anthropocentric because it it doesn't take into account anything like a Platonic realm or uh, the theological story, uh, which gives the idea of a of a universe full of other minds, not just human minds, right. a kind of panpsychist or animist world, right. um, where trees and the earth and the planets and the stars have their own kinds of minds and and the whole cosmos may have its own kind of mind and it's not just our projection onto an inanimate dead machine-like world yes but actually we're living in an animated world and the stories we form and the understanding we have is an interaction like a personal interaction if i meet somebody like you if i meet you if i came across as being incredibly paranoid defensive hostile then you'd react to me differently from if I respond in a more open way, and that's true of everything. You know, the way we respond to a per uh, the way we relate to a person affects their response to us, and in the way the way we relate to nature through our experiments and our science and our technology affects the way that nature responds to us. And I think we, you know, sometimes <clears throat> my inner critic questions my interest in such things as parapsychology <clears throat> and and you know various scientific heresies that I've been uh, very interested in for <laughs> my entire adult life really because it's like okay you know this is this is all very interesting Charles but like does it really matter if if uh, paranormal or you know psi phenomena are real when when like we're destroying the, the ecological foundation of life, of civilization, of human life on this planet. Like it, sometimes my, my critic, my inner critic says that the, these kind of, this whole world of parapsychology is kind of an escape um, and a channeling of my um, discontent into a fairly innoc innocuous realm that isn't going to really alter the dynamics of capitalism that are pushing our civilization over the cliff. Uh, and I, I don't believe that criticism, although it has a certain emotional power. Um, because I think that when I really, when I really, when I really um, explore what is the foundation of the world destroying machine, it's none other than what you just said, the idea that we live in essentially a dead universe devoid of intelligence or any subjectivity devoid of agency inanimate that we must therefore project impose our own meaning our own design our own intelligence onto mm. like that way of seeing nature well then what is nature then it's just building blocks mm. it's it's just resources natural yeah. resources and and even in the environmental movement today there's that thinking still prevails essentially even though like well there's kind of a schizophrenia um on the one hand pretty much every environmentalist that i've ever met truly has a personal relationship with nature loves nature yes. doesn't actually see nature as just a bunch of uh you know a random melee of force and mass mm. but on the other hand a lot of the um, kind of uh, articulation of of environmental arguments, said essentially saying we've got to be more clever in our deployment of natural resources. Mm. You know, we have to uh, um, be because if we don't, we're not going to survive. Mm. And we have to to they don't question the the basic premise, mm. but they just basically say we haven't been very clever in doing this. Mm. So I don't think we're going to have much, um, really any different results if we're just trying to manipulate things mm. more cleverly. Mm. I think that, that the actual, um, we, that until we transition into actually seeing other beings as alive, sentient, mm. intelligent, um, and, and just as worthy of respect as another human being is like i'm not going to treat you 
as the mere instrument of my selfish interest. Mm. Because I understand that you are a self as well. Mm. And until we see the planet that way, I don't think we're going to treat the planet any differently. Mm. So this is one of the, the deep links that I see between uh, the you know, world of, say, parapsychology with um, social justice and, and environmental mm. activism. Uh, they're all part of a transition in our mythology. Well, I agree with that. Um, but coming back to your very first point, that, it, that in a sense, looking at parapsychology, the inner critic says, you know, this is an yeah. escape from the real problems of destroying the environment. Um, that same criticism is not specific to parapsychology. It would apply to the search for the Higgs boson, to the search for the, to the Hubble Space Telescope, to looking at distant Well, not galaxies. quite, because, see, if we, if we understand the Higgs boson, and we finally have a theory of everything, then we will be able to more effectively engineer reality because perfect... Because it could be useful. Right. We'll be able to make better predictions. Yes. We'll be able to engineer things better. Yeah. But it doesn't apply to the exploration of quasars and outer space, or at least not in any immediate way. Nor does It's it a stretch, apply, yeah, to justify it like that. Yeah. yeah nor yeah. does it apply to, say evolutionary biology was stegosaurus a particular site what pl right. food plants did it eat you know the things that you go to the average natural history museum right. there's all these dinosaur skeletons and it doesn't apply but, to literature it doesn't apply to opera it doesn't no. apply to rock and roll no yeah. it doesn't apply so yeah. it would mean that almost every branch of intellectual inquiry in almost every subject would be a useless luxury when we've got a big problem here so that would be a completely non-specific criticism that's of true. psychology yes that's true. Um, I think the the reason that uh, the main reason that parapsychology is a kind of taboo for materialists is because it suggests our minds are more extensive than our brains, and that we're interconnected with the world around us more than we usually assume, and with each other. Either it suggests that our minds are greater than our brains, or it suggests that our brains, and by extension matter, has undreamed of properties and capabilities. Exactly. That, and yeah. I mean, the, the, the weakest part of the whole materialist science worldview is, is consciousness, because it tries to deny that consciousness does anything, and it's, it, consciousness is nothing but the activity of the brain. This propels billion-dollar programs to slice up brains, to do connectomes, to look at all the little connections on this assumption this will understand the mystery of the mind. It clearly won't. It seems to me an utter waste of money. Um, um, I think what we'll learn a lot more from is studying consciousness itself and, 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 and how it works. And parapsychology is one of those things. Telephone telepathy, one of the subjects I work on myself, suggests that when you have the intention to make a call to somebody, um, they often feel that intention. They start thinking about you. So when you actually make the call, they say, it's funny, I just started thinking about you and, and here you are. Um, when you have the intention to go home, your dog may pick up that intention and start waiting at the door, as in, I describe in my book, dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Right. Um, <clears throat> these things suggest our minds are more extensive and that we're interconnected with other beings. It also suggests that dogs have minds and abilities to detect you know, our intentions, that it's an interactive relationship. Whereas according to the mechanistic view, dogs are just machines like we are. You're just yeah. automata. Well, that's the, that's the problem of consciousness, really. You could just say that the problem is, the intractable problem, intractable problem is, I, I could phrase it like this, if you, how does consciousness arise out of building blocks that are themselves not conscious? And so you have various kind of, you know, ideas that consciousness is an emergent property, um, that it's... Um, Either, well, you could say that it's an emergent property, or you could say that it's essentially a fiction or an illusion, as Daniel Dennett would say. Um, but, but either way, like even saying that it's an emergent property uh, kind of dodges the issue. Yes. So Got to emerge from something. Right. And, and, and I think there is actually, I mean, I think that there is something, um, something really uh, mysterious and significant and paradigm-breaking about emergence. As a phenomenon, because it's not, it's not, it, it's not that you can't explain it reductionistically, like, but it's that the explanation doesn't explain anything. 
No, it just re-describes it. I, I, yeah. But, but I, want to, I want to just add one more thing to that. Hmm. Um, uh, <clears throat> so one uh, solution to that problem is to say that it's just that consciousness is not materially based. It doesn't have a material basis. That's why it's possible to have consciousness from arising from, you know, in, in a system that's composed of a whole bunch of unconscious building blocks. The other solution would be to say, well, maybe the building blocks are not unconscious. Maybe matter and consciousness are one all the way to the bottom. Maybe even an electron is conscious, which yes. to me, you know, I mean, I think that's what, what any um, animist, as we would call them, would say. And it also, to me, it makes sense in quantum mechanics, too. Like, you know, when, when you say, when you say take two, you know, uranium atoms and one of them decays and one of them doesn't. But they are under an identical set of forces. Yes. They are apparently identical in every way, but one of them decays and one of them doesn't. Why? The the physicist says, well, it's random. It's a causal. But you could also say, well, it's because one of them chose to, and one of them didn't. And in saying that, you're ascribing consciousness, or something, you know, agency, mm. all the way down to the base level. And if you if you accept that, then it stands to reason that as you build up from the base level, you would have more and more um, complex, diverse forms of consciousness. Yes, well, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think it's interesting that panpsychism has actually become quite fashionable. Uh, you know, Galen Strawson was one of the first philosophers of mine to, mm -hmm. a few years ago, to re... And it's not a new idea, of course, but to reformulate it, Thomas Nagel in his book Mind yeah. and Cosmos. Right. And he's a very influential philosopher, and he's you know now advocating a form of panpsychism. Yes, for the, exactly the reasons you suggest that to, to explain human consciousness, it makes more sense to think of it as being built up from parts that have some kind of mind or consciousness. The idea of spirit being totally immaterial or mind and being added onto building blocks is just Cartesian dualism. That's what right. has been around since the 17th century. Matter is unconscious, inert, and there's something called spirit which is not material, not physical, not in space and time, which uh, is possessed by God, angels, and human minds, but nothing else. Right. Um, and, and that's the worldview that modern science grew up with. It didn't start out materialistic, it started right. out dualistic. And for many scientists it still is. There's still this separation mm -hmm. between human spirit and God and angels completely disconnected from nature. And nature is an automatic machine we can control and run. Now I think the panpsychist view makes so much more sense. And the interesting thing is that all the great world religions grew up in a panpsychist world, a, yeah. an animist world. Um, the Jewish world of the Old Testament is one with, with holy trees, Abraham sleeps under holy trees, there's sacred stones like at Bethel, etc. It's a sacralized world. And it, the Christian philosophy in the Middle Ages, under the influence of St. Thomas Aquinas, was really Christian animism. All animals mm -hmm. and plants have souls, the earth has souls. The stars are alive, they have intelligences, they're angelic intelligences in all the stars and planets. Um, they lived in a living world, a living God of a living world. Um, it was the 17th century, the uh, scientific revolution, that reduced the whole world to inanimate, unconscious machinery. But panpsychism or animism is the worldview out of which Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, all of them, Buddhism, yeah. all grew sure. out of that world. And it's the world of shamanism and, and tribal cultures and, and so on. It's, in fact, the almost human, uh, universal human consensus until the 17th century when the scientific view came along. The one president were the atomists in ancient Greece who were mm -hmm. precursors of materialism mm -hmm. and atomism. That was a pretty minor school that was devastatingly critiqued by Aristotle and others and mm -hmm. not taken too seriously. Um, so, and and there, are, there are some precedents in Hindu philosophy too. But basically, it's only really since... <coughs> the late 19th century that this mechanical world with the dualistic world has been replaced by a p purely materialist world where nothing there's nothing but matter and consciousness is nothing but the activity of the brain. In terms of the whole of human history, it's a wildly heretical and eccentric view. Yeah. But it's now being taught in schools and universities over the entire world. Well, it also fits in with other 
realms of human interaction. I mean, it fits in with the um, dominant economic system where, you know, when, when you're surrounded by commodities and standardized things, mm. standardized job descriptions, standardized curricula, mm. uh, then it is much easier to believe that we're surrounded by, you know, that we live in a world of, of inanimate building blocks. Yes. When everything is rendered the same, then it seems much more reasonable. Yes, and it also, the, the, in the 17th century, where, when the modern scientific worldview was getting going, there was this revival of ancient Greek atomism, the materialist mm -hmm. philosophy. And in, in the English-speaking world, the primary proponent of it was Thomas Hobbes, mm -hmm. who was also, of course, a social philosopher. And right. he said, just as matter is made up of atoms, which are the indivisible units of the whole world, so human society is made up of atomic individuals. Yeah. And so you have the beginning of an individualist philosophy which treats society as a collection of irreducible mm -hmm. individuals. Right, then you it's begin essentially to, yeah. an atomistic view of society. All previous views of society saw society as corporate. They used corporate metaphors. They had, we still mm -hmm. do. The arm of the law, the head of state, etc. Yeah. Um, and the, the whole of society was conceived in this corporate sense as an organism joined together and, and coherently uh, mm -hmm. functioning together. Mm. So I think the two do in fact grow up together and what we're reaping now is the rewards of some of them very positive, I mean greater life expectancy, improved medical treatments, I mean very few of us would want to go back to medieval dentistry. Um, so there is, yeah. but the, also the, the, the disruptive effects, the socially dissolving effect of individualism, the idea that society is just made up of individual units without any really coherent conception of society as a whole. Right. And plus this uh, alienation of humans from nature and the idea we're in charge and can do what we want. Yeah. I'm, I'm debating whether to uh, bring in a little bit about medieval dentistry. Uh, I would hate to go back to uh, 2010 dentistry. Mm. You know, like one, one thing I've. When you begin to question one aspect of the orthodoxy, then you realize that every aspect of it is equally questionable. So, for example, medical conditions that are thought to be incurable or for which palliative care is only available are actually totally curable. Like, I've been. Um, healing my eyesight using the Bates method uh, that that de denies that uh, failing vision is just a natural uh, accompaniment to old age. Um, I've learned that there are ways to, to reverse tooth decay, you know, to heal cracked enamel. Um, like all of these, when, and, and I think fundamentally such things are, are, quite intuitive when you understand that, well, the tooth is alive, the eye is alive, every cell in it is alive and conscious, it has a desire, it has a wholeness mm. that it tends to, mm. um, and that any condition of one part somehow mirrors the condition of the whole. Mm. And like, you know, when, when, when you um, transcend the reductionistic, mechanistic understanding mm not just of the universe, but of the human body, mm. then what we call modern medicine also s begins to seem quite primitive. Not that there aren't situations where it's the best medicine available. Like, I'm not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If I had a no. severe car accident, any condition that would cause me to die within 24 hours, I would definitely mm. avail myself of emergency medicine. But, but um, I, yeah, I always wanted to, to, to throw that in there. Well, I, no, of course I agree with that. I think that we, we've got a dogmatic system of medicine like we've got a dogmatic, dogmatic system of science. And both of them work up to a point. I mean, we wouldn't have the internet, we wouldn't have computers and right. recording apparatus, and no one would be hearing podcasts if we didn't have these, this very effective modern technology. And many of us wouldn't be here if it wasn't, you know, I've myself, been, my life was saved through emergency medicine. So I feel grateful for it. Um, 
I think, though, that if we're going to have a, a truly scientific approach to medicine, then we would indeed look at all these other things. If I ran the National Health Service here in Britain, I'd run the medical research system, not on the way it's run at the moment, where 99.99% of the funding goes to mechanistic molecular medical type research. I'd run it so we actually look at what works. Mm -hmm. using comparative effectiveness research, which is a perfectly valid scientific method, statistical evaluation. You now, if someone's got lower back pain, what the National Health Service should be doing, in my view, is testing you know, people with lower back pain. Some are sent to regular doctors and, yeah. and physiotherapists, some to acupuncturists, some to craniosacral people, some yeah. to faith healers, some to homeopaths. And, and then just find out what works using standard questionnaire and evaluation procedures. And that would be a, a beautiful first step. But you know, I think then we would probably begin to realize that the, um, to some extent the diagnostic categories that we're using to measure results themselves influence the results. So, well, I think, yeah. I think we would. And, and, you know, and then people might say, well, these non-conventional ones are really doing it through the placebo effect. And, but then a debate about the placebo effect. Oh my God, the up. placebo effect. Once you start to delve into that, it is a mind-blowing It's astonishing. Yeah. And uh, I've, again, things are shifting. And uh, I read Nature every week because I, first of all, it's my favorite publication because I like to know what's happening in the core of science and very interesting yeah. advances. But it's also the most grown-up and intelligent forum at the moment. It's been through bad patches right now. It's mm -hmm. really good. Mm. And um, just two or three weeks ago, there was an article, a lead article, an opinion piece by somebody about evidence-based medicine. Uh, and she was saying, um, you know, we now recognize the placebo play effect plays a major part uh, in healing, even using conventional medicine. Um, and dismissing alternative and complementary therapies by saying they're nothing but the placebo effect is not evidence-based medicine. Evidence-based medicine is that many of them work. And if we call it the placebo effect, then we have to look at the more nuanced understanding of the placebo effect. This is not one thing. There's many things that would contribute to what's called the placebo effect, including rituals, expectations, hopes, mm -hmm. social support, etc. And she gives and any a whole list of these things. Any evidence-based medicine would have to take these into account. Mm. Only then would it be evidence-based. Right now, of course, what we've got is a system where so-called evidence-based medicine is based on meta-analysis of papers in top medical journals, right. which we know are biased. Drug companies don't publish negative results. We know that there's, they're often ghost-written. And we know that many alternative and complementary therapies have no funding so for research. So the studies yeah. aren't there because if they're not funded, they're not going to get done. Right. Um, so this is, this is really... Um, encouraging that that something that thoughtful and nuanced would be in nature. Yes. Um, and I, I suspect that probably a lot of people have been thinking these thoughts for a long time, yes. but not daring to publicly yes. air them. So the fact that that now, you know, what was once career suicide is now yes. acceptable. That's a really important. It's amazing the shift in science. I've never seen a shift within the sort of on the high table of science, as it were, as, as profound as is happening in the last year or two. Are you having trouble um, uh, getting used to no longer being a lonely heretic? Well, more and more <laughs> of the things I've been saying for years are now becoming mainstream, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, this is something I've always hoped would happen. But mm -hmm. I mean, I sometimes wondered if I'd live to see it. But yeah. I'm living to see a lot of the things that I've actually been arguing for for many years. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, I don't think he's not saying it's because I've been arguing for them they're happening, because I'm sure many of these people have never read anything I've written or listened to any of my talks or anything. So well, you're helping create the morphic field. It's a, for well, such it's a shift. To, it is yeah. a shift, a, a paradigm shift. A new morphic field is coming into being. Yeah. It's, a, you know, many ingredients in it. The, you know, the consciousness studies, the problems. As soon as you start studying consciousness scientifically, which hardly anyone did until the late 1990s, um, uh, as soon as that becomes on the agenda, then people start looking at near-death experiences, psychedelic experiences, uh, 
parapsychology, they all become part of the mix of mm -hmm. consciousness studies. Oh, and, this. and narrow materialism, that it's nothing but brain scans and right. synaptic connections and neurotransmitters, looks like part of the picture, but not the whole thing. The breakdown of um, and unaffordability of conventional medicine means that more and more people are being forced mm -hmm. to look at cheaper alternatives and complementary alternative medicine could in many cases provide them. So for economic reasons people are opening up. This lack of, uh, the, the crumbling of the idea that science is this citadel filled with hard facts defending itself from irrational forces all around it and, and we know the truth and it's all solid factually based. The kind of thing that materialists and dogmatic skeptics believe that's coming undone through mm -hmm. you know the temple of science is crumbling as we were mm -hmm. discussing earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a new mood of, mood of humility which is extremely welcome and I hope will lead to a greater openness and, and, and I think and a possibility for the sciences being more part of the solution than 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 part of the problem for for what's going on in the world. Yeah. We really need to. Yeah, we can, this this is a maybe a good ending thought. Um, yeah, thank you. That was beautiful. Mm. I think we need to uh, begin to decondition ourselves from the us versus them mentality that has been maybe necessary for a while um, when you're pursuing the kinds of inquiries that you are mm. uh, and you you know you get attacked mm. um, but to recognize now that the shift in consciousness mm. that we've been serving is now erupting within the citadel of what had been the enemy so to stop yes. think, you know to, to, to like I mean not just in the the core of science but in you know, the military, you know, in um, the banking industry. I mean, everywhere people are, and these, these it's been happening under the surface. Yes. But but now it's starting to, to become, people are, are starting to speak it out loud. Well, mm -hmm. I think that this is really happening mostly behind the scenes. And I have quite a lot of young scientists get in touch with me and say, you know, they despair of their colleagues. They're in this world where it's so rigid and so yeah. narrow and so dogmatic. What I say is, you know, talk to them in the evenings after yeah. a glass of wine. I was going to say, some of the colleagues themselves yes. have the same thoughts. And that's it. Yeah. They, many of them yeah. have the same thoughts. Yeah. That actually within the sciences and within actually probably banking, politics, you know, most of our official institutions, you know, within the police, yeah. I mean, here in Britain, the police of cannabis hasn't been decriminalised. The police have just stopped prosecuting people because they said that it's not their priority. They've got far greater priorities, mm. and basically, de facto, you know, it's, it's things are changing within these institutions yeah. because people's attitudes are shifting. So one of the things that I'm always trying to encourage my scientific friends to do is to sort of come out of the closet and and actually talk to colleagues about what really interests you. And don't do it in a formal seminar right. in the academic building because there the taboos are in full force. Yes. But do it privately in, in the evenings. And if I were a social activist, because I'm not very skilled in all these facilitation processes, I think what I'd start is a series of consciousness clubs on university campuses or uh, gatherings, more informal gatherings where mm -hmm. scientists and doctors and other people who are interested could talk in a way they're not afraid of having to maintain the taboos on the, on the assumption that many of their colleagues are going to be interested. Many of them will have taken psychedelics. Many yeah. of them will have been to complementary and alternative practitioners. Many of them will have a private relationship with the natural world and enjoy being in nature and maybe be tree huggers in secret. Um, uh, many of them will have had mystical experiences, many of them will meditate, mm -hmm. many of them will pray, many mm -hmm. of them will have religious uh, beliefs, but none of them are going to admit any of this in the laboratory or the seminar room. But as more people come out and realize... Because those, many are, of temples, their, those are temples of a different religion. That's right, they're temples mm -hmm. of this kind of materialistic scientism really they shouldn't be but that's what they've become but to liberate them i think what will happen is a kind of social movement and i think it's already happening but i think the way it's happening is through people talking informally at the moment and it's 
changing the tone. And I think that's, mm -hmm. as you said, what's coming up now bubbling to the surface in these establishment areas, including the financial world, the military, um, banking, corporations, and even within science. Yes. Well, that's a positive note. Yes, yeah. well, I do feel positive, actually. Yeah. And I guess I'll just end by thanking you for your your time today, but also just for your decades of work in serving this this emerging consciousness, this this um, morphic field, this transition. Yeah. Well, I should thank you first of all for a conversation that's been great fun, and also for your work in helping to bring about this transition. Um, and catalyzing a more thoughtful and heartfelt approach to the problems that all of us are aware of. Thank you. All right, so this has been, uh, again, Charles Eisenstein speaking with Rupert Sheldrake. If you want to find out more, oh, you know, what would be really fun would be for people to participate in his, uh, his uh, telephone telepathy experiment. That's still going, right? Yes, it, yeah. it is. And it's working in the US, in Canada, in Britain, um, and India and New Zealand. It's not everywhere right. yet, but in much of the English-speaking world. It can and and you can find out about it on... On my website, www.sheldrake.org. Sheldrake.org. All right. There you have it. You've been listening to A New and Ancient Story with me, your host, Charles Eisenstein. To engage more deeply, you can join our community on newandancientstory.net where we have live chats, forums, meetups, and all kinds of other tools for collaboration. If you want to find out more about my work, then visit my website, charleseisenstein.net.